Life is complex. Join us for the simple gifts of wisdom, love, and delight in the written word. The Everlasting Man by G.K. Chesterton Part 1 On the Creature Called Man Chapter 2 Professors and Prehistoric Men Part 3 We come back to the fact of a certain kind of mind that was already alive and alone. It was unique, and it could make creeds as it could make cave drawings. The materials for religion had lain there for countless ages, like the materials for everything else. But the power of religion was in the mind. Man could already see in these things the riddles and hints and hopes that he still sees in them. He could not only dream, but dream about dreams. He could not only see the dead, but see the shadow of death, and was possessed with that mysterious mystification that forever finds death incredible. It is quite true that we have even these hints chiefly about man when he unmistakably appears as man. We cannot affirm this or anything else about the alleged animal originally connecting man and the brutes, but that is only because he is not an animal, but an allegation, because we cannot be certain that he ever lived. He is only a vision, called up to fill the void that does in fact yawn between the first creatures who were certainly men, and any other creatures that are certainly apes or other animals. A few very doubtful fragments are scraped together to suggest such an intermediate creature because it is required by a certain philosophy. But nobody supposes that these are sufficient to establish anything philosophical, even in support of that philosophy. A scrap of skull found in Java cannot establish anything about religion or about the absence of religion. If there ever was any such ape-man, he may have exhibited as much ritual in religion as a man or as much simplicity in religion as an ape. He may have been a mythologist, or he may have been a myth. It might be interesting to inquire whether this mystical quality appeared in a transition from the ape to the man, if there were really any types of the transition to inquire about. In other words, the missing link might, or might not, be mystical, if he were not missing. But compared with the evidence we have of real human beings, we have no evidence that he was a human being, or a half-human being, or a being at all. Even the most extreme evolutionists do not attempt to deduce any evolutionary views about the origin of religion from him. Even in trying to prove that religion grew slowly from rude or irrational sources, they begin their proof with the first men who were men. But their own proof only proves that men who were already men were already mystics. They used the rude and irrational elements as only men and mystics can use them. We come back once more to the simple truth, that, at some time too early for these critics to trace, a transition had occurred to which bones and stones cannot, in their nature, bear witness, and man became a living soul. Touching this matter of the origin of religion, the truth is that those who are thus trying to explain it are trying to explain it away. Subconsciously, they feel that it looks less formidable when thus lengthened out into a gradual and almost invisible process. 
But in fact, this perspective entirely falsifies the reality of experience. They bring together two things that are totally different, the stray hints of evolutionary origins and the solid and self-evident block of humanity, and try to shift their standpoint till they see them in a single foreshortened line. But it is an optical illusion. Men do not, in fact, stand related to monkeys or missing links in any such chain as that in which men stand related to men. There may have been intermediate creatures whose faint traces can be found here and there in the huge gap. Of these beings, if they ever existed, it may be true that they were things very unlike men, or men very unlike ourselves. But of prehistoric men, such as those called the cavemen or the reindeer men, it is not true in any sense whatever. Prehistoric men of that sort were things exactly like men, and men exceedingly like ourselves. They only happen to be men about whom we do not know much, for the simple reason that they have left no records or chronicles. But all that we do know about them makes them just as human and ordinary as men in a medieval manor or a Greek city. Looking from our human standpoint up the long perspective of humanity, we simply recognize this thing as human. If we had to recognize it as animal, we should have had to recognize it as abnormal. If we chose to look through the other end of the telescope, as I have done more than once in these speculations, if we chose to project the human figure forward out of an unhuman world, we could only say that one of the animals had obviously gone mad. But seeing the thing from the right end, or rather, from the inside, we know it is sanity. And we know that these primitive men were sane. We hail a certain human Freemasonry wherever we see it, in savages, in foreigners, or in historical characters. For instance, all we can infer from primitive legend, and all we know of barbaric life, supports a certain moral and even mystical idea of which the commonest symbol is clothes. For clothes are very literally vestments, and man wears them because he is a priest. It is true that even as an animal, he is here different from the animals. Nakedness is not nature to him. It is not his life, but rather his death, even in the vulgar sense of his death of cold. But clothes are worn for dignity, or decency, or decoration, where they are not in any way wanted for warmth. It would sometimes appear that they are valued for ornament before they are valued for use. It would almost always appear that they are felt to have some connection with decorum. Conventions of this sort vary a great deal with various times and places. And there are some who cannot get over this reflection, and for whom it seems a sufficient argument for letting all conventions slide. They never tire of repeating, with simple wonder, that dress is different in the cannibal islands and in Camden Town. They cannot get any further and throw up the whole idea of decency in despair. They might as well say that because there have been hats of a good many different shapes, and some rather eccentric shapes, therefore hats do not matter, or do not exist. They would probably add that there is no such thing as sunstroke or going bald. Men have felt everywhere that certain norms were necessary to fence off 
and protect certain private things from contempt or coarse misunderstanding. And the keeping of those forms, whatever they were, made for dignity and mutual respect. The fact that they mostly refer, more or less remotely, to the relations of the sexes illustrates the two facts that must be put at the very beginning of the record of the race. The first is the fact that original sin is really original. Not merely in theology, but in history, it is a thing rooted in the origins. Whatever else men have believed, they have all believed that there is something the matter with mankind. This sense of sin has made it impossible to be natural and have no clothes, just as it has made it impossible to be natural and have no laws. But above all, it is to be found in that other fact, which is the father and mother of all laws as it is itself founded on a father and mother, the thing that is before all thrones and even all commonwealths. That fact is the family. Here again we must keep the enormous proportions of a normal thing clear of various modifications and degrees and doubts more or less reasonable, like clouds clinging about a mountain. It may be that what we call the family had to fight its way from or through various anarchies and aberrations, but it certainly survived them, and is quite as likely as not to have also preceded them, as we shall see in the case of communism and nomadism. More formless things could and did lie on the flank of societies that had taken a fixed form, but there is nothing to show that the form did not exist before the formlessness. What is vital is that form is more important than formlessness, and that the material called mankind has taken this form. For instance, of the rules revolving round sex, which were recently mentioned, None is more curious than the savage custom commonly called the Kuvad. That seems like a law out of topsy-turvydom, by which the father is treated as if he were the mother. In any case, it clearly involves the mystical sense of sex. But many have maintained that it is really a symbolic act by which the father accepts the responsibility of fatherhood. In that case, that grotesque antic is really a very solemn act for it is the foundation of all we call the family, and all we know as human society. Some groping in these dark beginnings have said that mankind was once under a matriarchy. I suppose that under a matriarchy it would not be called mankind but womankind. But others have conjectured that what is called matriarchy was simply moral anarchy, in which the mother alone remained fixed, because all the fathers were fugitive and irresponsible. Then came the moment when the man decided to guard and guide what he had created. So he became the head of the family, not as a bully with a big club to beat women with, but rather as a respectable person trying to be a responsible person. Now all that might be perfectly true, and might even have been the first family act. And it would still be true that man then for the first time acted like a man and therefore for the first time became fully a man. But it might quite as well be true that the matriarchy, or moral anarchy, or whatever we call it, was only one of the hundred social dissolutions or barbaric backslidings which may have occurred at intervals in prehistoric, as they certainly did in historic times. 
A symbol like the Kuvad, if it was really such a symbol, may have commemorated the suppression of a heresy, rather than the first rise of a religion. We cannot conclude with any certainty about these things, except in their big results in the building of mankind. But we can say in what style the bulk of it, and the best of it, is built. We can say that the family is the unit of the state, that it is the cell that makes up the formation. Round the family do indeed gather the sanctities that separate men from ants and bees. Decency is the curtain of that tent. Liberty is the wall of that city. Property is but the family farm. Honor is but the family flag. In the practical proportions of human history, we come back to that fundamental of the father and the mother and the child. It has been said already that if this story cannot start with religious assumptions, it must nonetheless start with some moral or metaphysical assumptions, or no sense can be made of the story of man. And this is a very good instance of that alternative necessity. If we are not of those who begin by invoking a divine trinity, we must nonetheless invoke a human trinity, and see that triangle repeated everywhere in the pattern of the world. For the highest event in history, to which all history looks forward and leads up, is only something that is at once the reversal and the renewal of that triangle. Or rather, it is the one triangle superimposed so as to intersect the other, making a sacred pentacle of which, in a mightier sense than that of the magicians, the fiends are afraid. The old trinity was of father and mother and child, and is called the human family. The new is of child and mother and father, and has the name of the holy family. It is in no way altered, except in being entirely reversed, just as the world which is transformed was not in the least different, except in being turned upside down. Tis the gift to be simple. Tis the gift to be free. Tis the gift to come down where we ought to be. And when we find ourselves in the place just right, t'will be in the valley of love and delight. When true simplicity is gained, to bow and to bend, we will not be ashamed. To turn, turn, will be our delight, till by turning, turning, we come round right. <laughs>